This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Now we have got an eclectic, I like that word, an eclectic lineup of topics this morning ranging from the legal to the general to the painful. You can't see me pointing, but I am. Dr. Carolyn Arnold is Director of the Pain Service at Caulfield Hospital and an expert in managing chronic pain syndromes. Now, it was drummed into us at medical school that pain is both a physical and emotional. Hearing that, Lex Judicata? A physical and emotional perception. And woe betide the clinician who treats only one aspect. Carolyn will be chatting with us about how one's thinking about the experience Experience of pain utilises brain plasticity to help patients do the things they've been missing out on. The autumnal years. They should be a time of rest, <laughs> reflection and enjoyment of a life well lived. But that's not always the case, especially if one faces financial hardship after years of putting away an SD. I'm looking at Lex Judicata, that's why he's laughing. We've all heard of elder abuse and understand it from a physical and emotional point of view, but what about the financial side of things? Lex Judicata is a retired lawyer, although he told me this morning he's not fully retired, and so the autumnal period of his existential existence and finances are at the front of his mind. And he's well-placed to share those issues with us, aren't you, Lex? But I've got to say, you're looking fantastic. Thanks, Mel. I, I, I am keeping the Taven Brothers uh, phone number right beside the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't see the point in continuing with that. You know, we should you know, put pain behind us. I agree. And just let me finish the intro. Dr Nick Carr <laughs> is our panel's GP. I knew I should have turned your mic off. Is our panel's GP. And we take advantage of him like you wouldn't believe. We, I should say, I pepper him with all sorts of questions and concerns for, about our kids and what vaccinations do we need for our Vietnam trip, the pain in my knee, that funny-looking rash that's just developed on my arm. You see, as a GP, you have to know enough about everything. He's like a Wikipedia of medicine, and today we're going to be talking with him about meat. EpiPen, my favourite epidemiologist, it's hard saying that word on air, um, is uh, in today with some ketchup and special comments. So stick around for the next half hour of medicine here at uh, Triple R's Radiotherapy. Lex, you spoke before, but good to have you back in. It's nice to be here, Mel. It's not just an hour of medicine, it's an hour of medicine and law, law relating to medicine. medicine and health. Mine's only vaguely related to health this week, but it's still it's an interesting time. No, but it we'll keeps us it. psychologically sane if we understand our legal it does. rights. Yeah, it does. Money's quite ha- happy, happy and healthy to have. That's nice to hear that from a medical team. <laughs> you know? I just thought you worried about but the Mal's, welfare of the human race. Mouse Ferrari, how do you think you can afford that? Well, you're going to have to get a re-sprayed, mate. It doesn't look, doesn't, those pictures I saw, it doesn't look good at all. Yeah, I'm laugh on the skids with, you know, a dinged up Ferrari. Welcome to uh, Dr Nick Thanks for coming in, Nick. Uh, lovely to see you, Mal, and I'm looking forward to a bit of a chat this morning. Yeah, I'm actually quite interested to hear about meat and so forth, because as we were talking about off-air, I was a vegetarian for about 20 years, and um, uh, eating meat again, uh, there was some philosophical, some financial, some gastroenterological I actually, I liked your version of it. It was, uh, what were you, a utilitarian? I'm a utilitarian, but I'll uh, tell you more about that during yes. your segment. On Tento Hooks. I one. made that word up. It's, what do you call it, a portmanteau. What's a portmanteau, Lex? Uh, something to do with suitcases. <laughs> you, or a drink. Is it something to do with a drink? You vest yourself as the, the, the portmanteau keeper. Portmanteau, I'm thinking of. Portmanteau. That's a suitcase, isn't it? Yeah. 
expert. Yeah. Oh. See, the pain expert knows. How come you don't know and you're the host? Well, um, you're pointing to the pain expert, and given that's radio, Lex, people can't see. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, Carolyn. Thank you so Thank much you. for coming in, and feel free to... Jump in any time you like. Uh, it's that time of the year, Epi. Yes, it is that time of the year. And I thought... Oops, sorry about no, this cool. week. I thought um, in today's um, Sunday Age about a very topical thing that's coming up, which quite a few families will be experiencing and young teenagers. So the heading of the title of the paper um, article was Schoolies Plan Get Legless, of course. Mm. So basically it says um, that no amount of education for these young people that are heading off to um, have fun on the Gold Coast or Bali or wherever, 70,000 revellers across the country will prepare to mark the end of their school year in November and December coming up. And that basically they're all going to go and get drunk. And if they're not going to go and get drunk, this wasn't mentioned in it, but they also have quite a bit of sex. Mm. And um, uh, that... There were some statistics from a paper a couple of years ago talking about the number of kids that have sex while they go to schoolies, and it was quite high. But all the figures I could find today was that the average age of losing your virginity is about 17.8 for Australians. Um, in the USA, it's 16.4, and in Malaysia, it's 23. So we were thinking today, and I was riding my bike in here this morning about, you know, what is it that would be helpful for the schoolies as they embark on their plane trip or wherever they're going? And a very fine person that I was riding with this morning suggested, and he did with his sons, he gave them a kit, and you give it to them just before they get on the plane, and in the kit are instructions about how to handle a hangover, some condoms, some maps, and phone numbers. So parents right. or anybody else, but right, basically these kids are off for some crazy fun hangovery every every sexy time. Every time I try and book a place down the coast this time of year, I get the third degree. Like, how old are you? Like, they can't tell from my voice. You know, where did you go to school? And I said, Melbourne High, about you know thirty years ago. Um, screening me basically to see if I'm one of the schoolies. Um, so obviously it's a I mean, it's not just a... It's a problem for everybody, not just uh, the kids and their parents, but for the local towns and the homeowners and that sort of thing. So I wonder, what can we do? Do you, uh, do you have any thoughts about what we can do? Because uh, it's not good. This isn't good with kids getting but, so uh, drunk. Is, is it because there's no other avenues to express their freedom at the end of their six years of high school or 12 years of education? Or um, no is, other, They think I of think it as a rite of passage, and it's certainly been going on for 10 years now if not more, mm. and certainly going to Byron Bay seems to have been a, a, a big destination. Dr Nick? I, th I think the really important message that comes from this article is exactly what it says, that educating kids about responsible use of alcohol doesn't work in this context. But what does work is reminding them to have, if possible, a responsible other person there who is sober, who can maybe look after them. So harm minimisation type strategies? Yeah, so, to, so let's not waste our time banging on about why it's a bad thing to drink, because we know that message isn't being heard. Let's talk about what does work. And Penny, <coughs> Penny's already mentioned handing out a few condoms doesn't do any harm, but reminding people that having another responsible person there who's maybe not so affected mm. is probably one of the safest things they can do. Anybody else done any... I, my kids aren't that age yet. My else? kids um, did schoolies, but nothing like this. I mean, they... And, and you know, I, I, so, I, maybe I'm just one-off, but 
maybe if we went around this panel with um, those of you who have got kids who have been through it, um, I think it's just a continuation of their upbringing. Mm. And if we didn't have a lot of boozing and drinking and all that stuff going on at home, it was all done in moderation. And they went, they had a, a reasonable schoolies visit somewhere or other. I forget where. I think one of them went to, to Noosa and one went to Byron on the train. Can you believe? I never even thought you could get to Byron on a train. Uh, it took her about two and a half days to get there. But, I mean, it was all just a, a continuation of their upbringing. And I, I just don't think kids throw away uh, 17 years of an upbringing for two weeks on schoolies um, if you've got um, a good relationship with them. It comes back to the relationship with your kids. And uh, I just think if kids are... Um, you know, uh, feel that they uh, don't have a responsible adult or that don't, don't feel that there's a responsibility to look after themselves. Um, it's too late to worry about it in schoolies. I reckon that's just a part of the puzzle. I reckon you can have the best upbringing with the best parents and the yes. best relationship yes. and you can still go away and get absolutely smashed. So I but think they, it's part of the puzzle. The majority of them don't do that, though. A few do that. Mm. A majority of them don't. majority of kids are responsible. And oh. as Nick said, the real worry is is the bogan who goes ballistic and causes trouble for sure, others. Sure, sure, sure. What about schools? Do you reckon schools could be part of the answer to this, to have some sort of program after schools, to have some, you know... I don't know. Fun activity with your teachers. <laughs> <laughs> it's illegal now, I think. I don't think that's going to well, happen. Well, with your teachers, but, you know, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I haven't, I haven't given this a lot of consideration, but... You can't, you can't just say, this is bad, don't do it. You need to replace it with something else, is my thought. Yeah, why, why wouldn't the school throw open its camps? For, you know, you've got a camp yeah. in the Alps or you've got a, you know, why don't you say to your school leavers, you can go up, up without teachers. It's available yeah, to I you. I think as a lawyer would have thought of the public liability concerns. Yeah, they'd be <laughs> Retired lawyer, retired. But they could, couldn't they? I mean, theoretically they could. They I, could think, I just we, think it's going nuts. It's no parents, all this freedom with all their mates. And maybe it's a part of, you know, if if they cut loose, but just not hurting themselves and not hurt, and making sure that they don't. But that's the problem, Penny. I know, but maybe it's it's being aware and and like I spoke to my son today, and he was saying that they've all done a first aid course at school. Yeah. And so he said, look, I know if they fall over and I know what to do and I know if somebody has a heart attack and I'm thinking, I don't think he's that's the right age group. But <laughs> what sort of first aid was this? It's, it's a certificate that he's got through doing at school at year 11. Uh, so you can do sort of cranial decompressions when they hit their head on yeah, the pavement. <laughs> when one of my kids was uh, on schoolies, one of the best things she found was that group, the Red Frogs. Um, and I think this is, again, part of that harm minimisation. What are they? What are Red Frogs? The Red Frogs are a um, voluntary, voluntary group that provide... Uh, a bit of supervision and safety, adults, young adults around who are not part of schoolies, uh, but who volunteered to provide escorts home and that sort of thing. The so Red she Frogs. could go. So, so she could go out, and at two o'clock in the morning, there'd be someone from the Red Frogs who would walk her back home safely. And so one of the things I think is important, we we can go on and on at the kids themselves, but we need to recognise this behaviour is going to continue and we can help them do this more safely by providing services like the Red Frogs. I've never heard of this before. So this is a, what is a group of they, they parents that just got... And they walk around. They're local people and they yeah. walk around the beaches and the streets and they help kids. <sighs> landlords, probably. Local landlords. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're, what a great they're, idea. They're older, sober, young yeah. adults who are on the lookout and trying to help That's great. get off trouble before it begins. But, but it's even 20-year-olds. It's kids that have been to schoolies in the past. <sighs> See, I didn't even know about that. So how do you find out? Is it they're like... all there. They wear an outfit and they um, walk around and introduce themselves the and the kids can, find, yeah. kids can find them. They're all the, all the Australian res- uh, resorts have them. I don't think in Bali or overseas, but... So uh, is, this, is this like a... a... Um, what do you call it, um, an organisation that is government-endorsed or it's on the net, it's got a presence, or is it just sort of a volunteer thing that people get together type of thing? No, it's a, it's a volunteer group that was founded yeah. by a bloke called Andy Gourlay, um, and uh, it's just taken off from there. Wikipedia. See, he didn't even look that up, listeners. He just That just came off the no, top. No, I of craned over EpiPen's neck and had a look at the thing on the paper. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Don't admit to that. You are listening to 3RRR Radiotherapy. Um, They're not really free, are they, Mel, at the end of school? You're not really free. (laughs) What did Dylan say? Just think of the treadmill you're on after you leave school. You've got to serve somebody. Uni fees finding a job while you're studying, trying to balance your money and do your study, think about your career, think about the lack of jobs when you graduate. I mean, you're not really free. Trying to get through. It's a myth, isn't it? But maybe it's just go nuts before that. Yeah. Just get it out of it's your system. It's worse than it's ever been for school leavers oh, after look. school now. Yeah. It's a really tough game out there. Oh, yeah, 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 that's for sure. In all the professions, you know, yeah, your yeah, profession, yeah. my yeah, profession, yeah. you know, the jobs are thin on the ground, um, the, you know, the fees are high, the entry level's crippling, you've got to get these massive scores to get, you know, into some of the big professional... Well, uh, well thank you for that uplifting... <laughs> <laughs> Sunday morning. Poor teenagers. Yeah. Oh. It's tough for them. And, you know, um, I think they need a lot of support. And the last thing they want is a head injury from schoolies. So how did you, how did you support your kids, Lexa? Uh, you just... You, you, well, you, you do back them up. You know, you, you're, you're there for them as much as you can be. And you give them whatever advice you can along the way. But and I, money. I, I think that's what it's... And about. money. Well, that never stops either. Mm, so did you, did you call them across from the east wing of the mansion and say, we're <laughs> well, flying off to the Alps now, Learjet? The, the butler took them to most of the events. <laughs> for nanny. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming and... Uh, why don't you just take it away? Okay. Well, I thought it'd be interesting today to talk about some of the ways that we we have the way our brain sort of can manage pain. And I thought a good example to start the discussion might be talking about a context for an injury. And so, one everybody has a kind of view that pain is a very fixed thing that you have an injury of a certain intensity with a certain amount of tissue damage, and you get a consistent experience of pain. But in fact, that's not the case. Um, and a good example would be a footballer who suffers a quite a significant injury in a match, like a fractured ankle or, a, you know, chest rib fractures, and it's the grand final and the team's going fantastically well, so they they just play on regardless and might even kick a goal, and then afterwards they sort of limp off the field and realise that they've been hurt. But for quite a long time they've had kind of good natural analgesia, and and what a contrast that would be to a patient that I saw this week, who was um, working in a, a butchering setting handling big. People pieces of meat on a table and with hooks above who um, had identified the, a rail above his workspace which was a risk for someone to hit their head or whatever um, and so he was working and he actually had an injury where 
the exact thing that he'd been mm. um, talking to his employer about happened and his immediate response as well as severe pain in his neck when he sort of accidentally bent mm. forward and hit his head was this incredible anger as well mm. that this was an avoidable incident and that he'd been injured in something that was completely avoidable which is a very different context and there's a lot of kind of emotional markers mm. in place in that situation and to me that seems to sometimes set up the journey for being much more complicated right from the outset. It's like all the adrenaline and the sort of warning systems are already activated almost before the pain starts to kick in and I think that's been a very difficult journey for that patient because of that and I, I thought that was a good example yeah, of how yeah. context mm-hmm. changes our pain experience. Can I, can I ask you about pain because um, in, in living with pain because Four Corners recently did a program on so, people with sore knees and how arthroscopic surgery yes. is unnecessary um, and in fact, uh, Dr. Doodle on this program once said, "I think the best thing you can, best thing about an arthroscopic surgery is lying in bed afterwards. You do, you get more benefit from lying in bed than having the surgeon fiddle around with your knee." But, um, but the theory was that you should just put up with sore knees as you get older and have pain management for them. Yeah. Is that the sort of patient you're seeing? That you know, where the surgery I think, isn't I think an probably, option. Well. Yes, in fact, the, probably the most common cause of chronic pain in our ageing population will be osteoarthritis and particularly the large joints, hips and knees. And I guess what we're recognising is that with the right management, for example, of knee osteoarthritis, people can go up to six years longer before the joint is deteriorated and pain is so severe that they need surgery if they have these other treatments, this so-called pain management. And that would include things like using a simple dose of an analgesic for some pain control, um, if possible, weight reduction, a regular exercise program that keeps them stronger and mobile, and um, maybe some education about how to cope with pain maximum adaptions. But don't a lot of people, and I'm coming from a point of ignorance here, <laughs> um, Carolyn, don't a lot of people with osteoarthritis who eventually end up having a uh, an operation to replace the knee... Isn't it just hard for them to, to take, you know, the Panadol every six hours and to do all those sorts of things? Well, in fact... I mean, there's quite strong evidence now in favour of these conservative treatments in, at okay. a certain point in the management. And obviously, you know, even a few years of functioning without needing surgery is, is going to be good enough function or the surgery would be brought forward. And I think, you know, the evidence is very strong for these measures okay. rather than surgery. I'm not saying that surgery doesn't have a place, but it's yeah, maybe but, the time in addressing these other factors. Is it strong among your medical colleagues? Because if you go and see a surgeon, yeah. there's only going to be one piece of advice you'll get, and that's to have yeah. surgery. I mean, it's a, a surgeon's on board... There are some ethical kind of considerations to consider. I mean, surgery has risks as well, and sometimes other health factors can have an impact on the outcome of the surgery. Um, And a small percentage of people, up to 20% of people, for example, after hip replacement, continue to experience pain afterwards. So it's not a certainty. Mm. So obviously if people can develop some... And I think there's very much a focus in our medical kind of view that surgery is great, it fixes things and it's immediate, whereas... I guess pain management is more about patient involvement and yeah, empowerment. And, and far better for me to stick up for surgeons, Lex, but the last three people I know have gone to see a surgeon with knee pain, the surgeon has said each time, you decide, um, patient, when you want the operation because it's decided by your level of pain, you know, go yeah, away and think about they it. they recommend going to see someone like Carolyn for pain management? Well, I haven't gone to that level of detail, It's not on Lex. their radar. Um, Carolyn, one one thing that really interests me about pain, maybe you can talk about this a bit, is um, what our expectations are. Because when you're living yeah. with chronic pain, people sometimes hope and expect that they would have the prospect of being pain-free. But mm. that's not always realistic, is it? No, it's not always realistic. And we know that some people manage pain better than others. There are some people who, for whom it causes more distress. 
and I think part of that is education about a realistic expectation and we know even with drug trials you know the goal of an effective drug for pain is that it's a 50% reduction of pain it's not pain free mm. and and we know also that if you get some reduction of pain you've got to capitalize on it mm. and do things like regain your fitness you know continue to function in the society make some adaptions address perhaps your weight problem so so is the goal a rehab approach where you say very much yeah so very much. what is it that you can't do what do you want to do rather than yes and how can you adapt yeah. you know it might be that yes it's perhaps time that you can't continue to do um aerobic classes and running but yeah. you you could do some other walking or do different classes or and what sort of mental strategies can patients mental employ? strategies are very important many people with chronic pain suffer depression um, and so that needs to be addressed in its own right, often through counselling or what we call cognitive behavioural therapy. But it's also, some of it's really healthcare education about what is a realistic expectation. And sometimes it's the way we've been brought up to approach something. So we might sort of challenge people a little bit with cognitive therapy about their belief system and help to get some strategies, maybe relaxation, maybe learning some gentler forms of exercise, maybe adapting the way they do things so that they're easier to do and still functioning and continuing working is good if it can be done and, and what about the role of the, the strong painkillers the opiates the morphine like drugs you know we know that we're we're, <laughs> we're swimming in this sea of opiates out there we know yeah. we have twice the number of, yeah. of prescription medication deaths from yeah. overdose than we do there's of, been a road real... deaths um, I mean, so I we think... know there's a huge amount of harm coming from yeah. these drugs do they have a place in chronic pain management Look, they have a very limited place. I mean, inevitably there are a few patients who manage and improve their function with a modest dose of opioids. But in fact, I'd say overall over the last 20 years we've been very disappointed about the impact of opioid medication in what chronic pain. What are the names pain. of opioids for the listeners? Morphine, MS-Contin, Endone, Oxycontin. Hey, Car Carolyn, I saw something on the telly about a month ago. They, they were getting some chemical out of some sort of starfish or something from the uh, Great Barrier Reef or something and it was like some yeah. and it had amazing are, analgesia effect. Yeah. Do, 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 these are very interesting. There's a lot of they're called conotoxins. These they're called conotoxins. They come from um, shellfish and snails and things like that and they're very interesting molecules because they seem to bind to some of the receptors that are involved in pain transmission so right. it's still fairly experimental but there's a lot of hope that we'll find one that's safe and tolerable which can have quite a specific targeted analgesic effect so so with these things you could, you could the hope is in the future you could take it yes. and it wouldn't sedate you or have all the horrible yes. side effects one of the problems is that the uh, system of nerve uh, impulses and receptors is very complex and to find something that works on a particular area without having side effects and adverse effects in a lot of other areas and I mean coming back to opioids opioids have a lot of negative side effects yeah. which cause problems I mean in men they can cause erectile dysfunction testosterone deficiency if the big doses are used which is a real concern they also possibly um, actually prime the nervous system paradoxically to create increased pain so really? lots of our good drugs have very serious side effects so we're not they're not 100% good you can't really operate for very long on um on opioids, can you? Because of, of the dulling effect. I mean, you can't yeah. really have a, a life w at work where you're trying to use your brain to think clearly if are, you're drugged down on yeah, opioids. Yeah, I think they are dulling, and people often don't realise when they're on them until they even come off them, and suddenly they realise how dull they were. And, and what are the chances of an addiction just by I think unconscious addiction? Addiction, yeah. addiction can 
develop unintentionally, um, both physiologically addictive but also psychological addiction. I mean, I think it sort of sometimes helps people do with other stresses and anxieties and maybe escape, and it's, it's, a, it's a very insidious in its onset, and it, we need to be more aware of it when we're using it. And, and tell me, what happened to the Vincent's powder? Yeah, well, Vincent's powder was probably one of the things that caused the famous um, years of analgesic nephropathy in Australia. What's what's Vincent's powder? It had uh, aspirin derivative salicylate in it, didn't it? Is that right? Oh, yeah. It was was like a cigarette paper. (laughs) You you unwrapped it and you put it in a glass of water and drank it. I'm pretty sure that was one of the uh, drugs that could have caused analgesic nephropathy in people. That's a very interesting example of a a mild analgesic that still became addictive to people who over used it and caused organ damage mainly kidney damage serious kidney damage and there was a whole epidemic when I was first training in medicine of um, renal failure due to analgesic misuse, mm. big problem yeah. Bex, uh, I'm pretty sure Vincent's powder is the same is that right Dr Nick, I mean you're the encyclopedia there's no notes in front of him <laughs> yes and, and I, will, I will claim Englishness here because I wasn't <laughs> in Australia with, um, but uh, it was a various, particular Australian there are various of problem. those sort of Bex and Vincent's yeah. and other powders that contain solicitation uh, I think some of them contained a drug called indomethacin as well, mm. which is quite toxic Terrible to the kidneys. Uh, and uh, you're quite right, there was a, a big thing, and they'd take these powders, have a lie down, and people got addicted and their kidneys got suffered. S- um, since we've gone here, we may as well mention that there's also some concern currently coming up in the news about the uses of codeine combined with other analgesic agents, because codeine's quite addictive. It be t- it's turned into morphine in the bloodstream, which is a strong yeah. opioid. And there are some mixed analgesics, particularly ones with anti inflammatories um, in mixed in with the codeine and neurofin plus and stuff like that and it's caused a lot of problems with gastrointestinal disease from the um, overdosing on the anti-inflammatory component you're not using it correctly and how big a problem is it though I don't know the extent of the problem. I've seen quite a few patients um, in in the hospital in the Alfred with um, severe gastrointestinal disease from anti-inflammatory abuse who are actually codeine addicts, probably. So, so these people from in they uh, take large amounts of those tablets yes. every day. Yes. The public wouldn't necessarily know codeine was addictive, would they? Well, I mean, you just take no, it they might not, but at the moment there's yeah. a big debate going on about removing any mixed analgesics from over-the-counter um, really? use in the yes. chemist. Well, it's they, going to be big. They are all going to become prescription only in yeah. 2016. So you're not going to be able to panadine in the chemist? Or so hang on, anything with plus. codeine is going to be prescription only? Yes. yes. Currently you can buy products with 8 oh. or even 15 milligrams yeah. of codeine over-the-counter in the wow. chemist and um, at some point in 2016 that won't be possible any longer. Do you know one of the other side effects that isn't well, mentioned a lot about codeine, um, is that it's incredibly constipating for some people. Yes, it's sort of the best bang for your buck for an <laughs> opioid. You can get more constipated on codeine than probably any of the other ones. I've, I've, I've had experience <laughs> wow. with this. It's particularly unpleasant. <laughs> and the other thing people don't realise about codeine is 15% of the population don't have the enzyme yeah. that metabolises it to morphine. So for really? about one in seven people who take a codeine-containing compound, it produces no pain relief benefit at all. So we may as well just take the plain drug. Quite the opposite with the large bowel. No, no side effect either because it just doesn't do anything. It goes straight through. Well, one, and can you predict who they're going to be? I mean, if your you parents... Could, if you do genetic it? testing... But I don't think know, many people go and get a genetic option. test before they pop down and buy some urethane plus. Yeah, I, yeah. So does that mean they're going to have to go to the GP to get yeah. any kind of... So is there going to be a cheaper rate to see the GP? Because well, there's always a been... No, but there's no, always been rate because a, seriously, we have a bit of pain and I get migraines and... Yeah, well, you'll have to get your code in from the GP if you... Yeah. Well, you have to see the person. I've got a few old packets of Vincent's powders I can... <laughs> 
How many shillings were they, Lex? Oh, <laughs> shillings. I know, but my dad used to take them frequently. I know. Look, just one last question because I know time is getting on. Can, can, I just want to talk to you about compensation neurosis. To, to what extent do you have patients coming to see you who have a compensable injury and they really believe that surgery is the answer and they won't accept pain management? It's very difficult. We do have quite a, a large number of patients who are involved in compensation, like um, work cover or TSC. And yes, they are often they often feel very deprived and a, fe- a feeling of injustice towards the whole system, and that it's in blocking their entitlement to treatment. And the surgery is the answer. You have to, have, well, you know, if I be, have this yes. surgery and it's the doctor difficult. won't, the surgeon won't do it. He doesn't believe it would be in my best interest. Yeah. And do you find that they become yeah. aggrieved, and they can become very aggrieved and have a strong sense of injustice from that experience, and that's a real challenge for us. I mean, it, it, it can get so bad. There, there are cases of. Um, health workers who've been injured by patients who are Mm. so aggrieved, who've been attacked or Mm. even killed by Mm. aggrieved patients who Mm. believe that they should have a treatment even though the doctor may not believe that that's going to help them. Western Hospital. Um, Mindfulness, just briefly. Mindfulness is one of the wonderful um, psychological therapies that we're using in pain now. Um, It's a very simple technique that can be taught. It doesn't have to be a pain program and it's, it's really about changing your thinking about activity and what you're doing in a very natural way and I think those sort of therapies are very helpful. Now, Carolyn, if somebody wants to find you or a pain service, what do they do? Um, Well, the the Australian Pain Society does have a a list on its website, I think, of different centres around the place. So the best thing to do would be to discuss it with your general practitioner because sometimes some of the therapies we offer are sort of run through the GP and Medicare stuff or it doesn't always have to be in a specialist clinic. Or there's also a big website called Pain Australia which has a lot of things about consumer um, chronic pain groups and other resources and there's a very good um, website from the Agency for Clinical Innovation in New South Wales oh, yeah. with some pain education online. One of them for children's called Pain Bites, B-Y-T-E-S, but there's other stuff there for doctors and patients and people. Very Fantastic. good. Great. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for coming in. <laughs> Stick around because then you can um, poke at the bear next to you. His name is Lex Judicon. <laughs> Three triple R. Let's judicata. Well, Mel, I thought I would say something to you this morning about how the big banks are, are really unwittingly, I suspect, causing grief to yep. a number of elderly um, Australians yep. uh, who thought that their life savings were protected against fraud uh, and find that, in fact, that's not the case. In Victoria... Uh, On September the 1st, we had a new Powers of Attorney Act passed, which combines financial and guardianship into one single instrument. So you can give someone, uh, you the um, principal, can give the attorney the power to look after your lifestyle issues and your money uh, by signing a document. Right. And and the now that was always the case, but the new law right. uh, combines the two together. For the first, that's the first point. But the main point is that the new law uh, imposes obligations on the attorney to behave themselves. And VCAT, for example, can order the attorney to pay compensation if they waste the assets of the principal. So if they go and put them put the money on Michelle Payne on next Tuesday instead of last Tuesday and lose the lot. <laughs> Not that I'm saying Michelle won't win next Tuesday, but, um, you know, if they waste the money, 
right. they have to compensate the principal. And VK can order that. And that wasn't the case before. Whoa, 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 hang on, whoa, 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 so who brings action against... Oh, well, lots of people could do that. Okay. The family, if the person subsequently dies, the executor can against the attorney during the lifetime. All sorts of people have rights. Now, the other thing that can happen is that um, they can be sent to the court for fraud and get five years jail. So if an attorney defrauds um, the person who gave them the power, um, then there are prison sentences, and that was never the case before. So one September, a whole new world, and you thought, well, that's great, because um, particularly elderly Victorians, and we're only talking about a Victorian law here, are protected against fraudulent conduct by attorneys. Well, within two weeks of the 1st of September, we get... The Law Institute of Victoria gets a letter because I'm on the Elder Law Committee, not because I'm an elderly lawyer, but because we have a committee that deals with a topic called Elder Law. And we've had, we've had a letter from someone in Victoria talking about the fact that um, their nephew basically defrauded their grandmother over a period of six years. Um, and I won't go into uh, what happened, but no. in effect the grandmother was forced to... Uh, lost all their money in a bank account. Mm. The money was used to buy a property for the f- nephew who was uh, defrauding her and then he put his grandmother into the uh, property and made her pay rent and threatened to evict her, even though her money had paid for the property. So it's, th- these stories are quite common. But the issue is that that nephew uh, was not operating under a power of attorney. So if he... In other words, he was getting away with this and could get away with it today without having a power of attorney. All he did is, all he would have done is he would have gone to his grandmother and said, look, if you just sign this form, which is an authority to operate, put out by the bank, and I've got one here in front of me yeah, from the Commonwealth Bank, all, all, the, all the major banks have an authority to operate. Look, look, Nan, if you just sign this, um, I'll look after your finances. So Nan signs it, and that gives the nephew, or gives anybody... Complete access to your bank account. Now, it's not under the power of attorney law. Oh. You're not an attorney. So the penalties under the Power of Attorney Act that don't I just operate. described don't operate. So you, can, you get so around why, it. So why would anybody want to become a power of attorney then? If well, if you're a donor, you would say to the nephew, sorry, young man, um, I'm not going to sign an authority to act. I'm only going to give you a power of attorney. But a lot of old people don't understand that. Hang on, no, no, I don't understand well, that. Well, to if, be if, protected... Let's just say I'm, uh, I want, I'm 90 years old and I want You to... should insist on giving a power of attorney because you've got the law to protect you. you know, the... I'm not going to know that. C- correct. Uh, that's exactly right. So what happens is the nephew or the you know, the, the crook or the puts whoever. the form in front of, usually a relative, puts yeah. the form under grandma's nose and says, look, if you just sign this, grandma, we'll make sure that all your bills are paid and we'll look after you. And that's what this nephew did. And it's called an authority to operate. Now, banks yeah. operate nationally. They don't operate just in Victoria. So the Commonwealth Bank, for example, has the authority to operate form available anywhere in Australia. So that they don't, it doesn't worry the Commonwealth Bank that, Victoria's um, toughened up the law to protect older people through the power of attorney law. The bank doesn't require a power of attorney to give access to the bank account. All it wants you to do is get your grandma to sign authority to operate and email it in. Grandma doesn't even have to come into the bank. The whole thing can be done by email. And, in fact, I've got the email trail here that this couple gave us where they simply rang up the bank and the bank said, oh, yeah, we'll email you out the form, get grandma to sign it, scan it and send it back, and you've got access. 
But surely the Victorian... Oh, there sorry. was no test of competence for the grandmother to give consent. No, no. well, see, with the power of attorney uh, for finance, it can operate when you've got capacity, uh, just that it continues when you lose capacity. So the, unlike the medical one, which I won't talk about, this is mm. not re- relevant to medical power of attorney, but the financial one operates while you're competent, if you so choose. Surely, as a law, and I'm not speaking as a lawyer, if banks have got this set up in Victoria... it, it Nationally... Won't... Well, this is a national form but, but by should, the CBA. But then shouldn't Victorian legislation mean that that piece of paper uh, is invalid? Is invalid. Well, it's yeah. not. See, it operates... As I a mean, there's no thing. compulsion. The, the law in Victoria doesn't say it's a criminal offence to give access to someone's bank account other than through a power of attorney. There's no such law. But laws. shouldn't it be saying that? Is that what you're well, saying? I, I, is that what I, you're saying? Or? Of course it should. should. The authority to operate should be, a ba- should be banned. The consumer, the consumer uh, affairs department should prohibit banks from allowing people to get authority to operate a bank account uh, simply by f- signing a form online and well, email. That- now, the other thing, before I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't no. want to get too far down the track on this, but uh, you know, as you can tell, I'm on a bit of a high horse here. The problem really? with this nephew case I've just described to you, which was sent to the um, Law Institute, he took six hundred thousand out of a bank account, basically reduced it back to two hundred and fifty bucks. When they went to the police. The police said, we can't do anything about it because your grandmother has signed the authority to operate. It's been done with consent. So, okay, hang on, I had a question to ask you. you So you can't bring the perpetrator to justice even, even though he's taken the money out of the account. Because she signed, because grandma signed the authority to operate, it's not fraud. But see, what I don't get is, if, 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 leaving this sort of case beside, if, if I sign a, um, a, um, an attorney, uh, yeah, power, power attorney, power yep. attorney, and say I'm signing it over to you, yep. there's some expectation that I'm competent to do that. So yeah, whoever, you have to be competent. Yeah. Whereas with any bank transfer form, there's no assessment of competency or is there a, is an implicit sense of competency? How does that operate? No, no, because this can be done online. This, this authority to operate can be, doesn't need... The bank does not need to see the donor, the principal, doesn't need to see so them. how does that operate? How? Well, you tell me. This is the way really? the bank... The bank just wants to have someone sign on the line, make sure it's her signature, make sure it's grandma's yeah. signature, so they'll verify the signature, but they would say that that authority to operate is enough and the police say, signing that, it's game over for fraud. We can't prosecute well, anyone who steals if they've been given the authority to operate that the would account. Makes sense under the law, no? Yeah, but does it make sense for the yeah, older the, person who's no, lost their entire no, I'm, savings? I'm so it is does. it going to change? What, well, what, no. what are you doing about it? Well, yeah, exactly. The, yeah, the, yeah, I'm doing about Lex? it. I'm climbing Lex. up on my high horse and Get bringing it, it to the attention of listeners here this morning because, and the Law Institute, of course, is doing the same because yeah. um, I don't think any of us had any idea how easy it was to get hold of someone's assets other than through the normal channels of a power of attorney. So this is you speaking as a seasoned lawyer, as an yeah. ex-president yeah. of the Law and Institute? I'm on the Elder Law Committee, and we've, we've, we gave a lot of commentary on the new powers of attorney law before the Victorian government brought and you it had, in. you didn't foresee this? No. No one foresaw this, and no one realised how easy it was to... I mean, we always thought when you went to a bank with an older person, the bank would ask to see the power of attorney instrument. You know, if you want to come in here and operate your mother's account, you better give us the power of attorney document. But Lex, surely this is not designed, this authority to operate yeah. is not designed specifically for older people. This is a banking system so that 
people can choose friends, relatives, yeah. partners, whatever, yeah. mm. who co-operate an account. And that must be commonly done with people with perfect capacity. Yes, financial advisors often have it. Yeah, so there must mm. be a system where people can relatively simply be able to operate a bank account and what you're looking at in a sense is just the very thin end of a wedge where it's misused but yep. that's but this is not designed just for older people is it that's co quite correct and but it's very difficult to open a bank account you've got to produce all your identity and you know your passport and your 500 points of id and all the rest of it but it's not at all difficult to obtain an authority to operate you can do it over the internet so there's got to be there's an imbalance there between uh, opening an account and accessing someone else's account. So I think it's something. So that that's interesting. Could you if so, 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 so you've got an account with um, I don't know Bank X, like the the Lex account at Bank, Bank X, and I don't have an account there. Can I have authority to sign? Yes. Yes. Really? I, if I sign this form, give it to you. Yeah. They, they send it to the bank unless every time Dr. Mel walks in, he just behaves as though it was me. And, and that's what'll happen. And this is what businesses do. This is yeah, what sure, we sure. did with our practice manager, previous practice manager, who turned out to be, as it happens, a convicted fraudster. Oh, my um, goodness. And so she had authority to operate her account, which she did with gay abandon. Um, and the interesting thing was how easy it was, as you're saying, for her to get her name mm. on the account, how very, very hard it was to have it removed. Oh. And do you know what the bank's slogan at the bottom of the email? When they've said, sure, <laughs> just get your mother to sign this and email it back to us, says the person at the... Oh, it's not the Commonwealth Bank particularly I'm having a go at. It's all the major all banks. banks. You hate all banks. The, on the bottom it says at the bottom of the email to excel at securing and enhancing the financial well-being of people, businesses and communities. That's their slogan. That's the way they operate. Well, there's no financial well-being for this particular yeah, grandmother yeah. who's lost all her money yeah, yeah. and who the police can take no action on her behalf to recover. The law. Bad, isn't it? Bad for mental health, bad for old people. Uh, and just, uh, really a, a classic loophole in the current law. Just before I let you go, Lex, last, you, last year you were on the show talking about having lawyers come into hospitals and walk around and see patients who needed them. How's that going? Mm. Well, it seems to be going very well. It's spreading to other hospitals now. Really? And um, uh, I think it was announced in... The Victorian government's announced that they're uh, on domestic violence. There are now lawyers volunteering in hospitals to offer assistance to victims of domestic violence. The system I was describing was really a general purpose lawyer who will do anything for patients in a hospital who, where the legal problems they have might be interfering with their recovery or with their general health and wellbeing. And that seems to be striking a nerve. It seems to be uh, very, being very well received and spreading among the major hospitals, certainly here in Melbourne. Uh, one quick, quick stuff, for, yeah. or some information on elder abuse, because obviously this is what it's touched on. There is a website that's funded by the Victorian government called seniorsonline.vic.gov.au and they've got lots of information for relatives and elder people. Maybe even we should be looking at, at this website before we get old. Senior Rights Victoria is the agency that's been set up by the Victorian government. Yeah, by all means, uh, if you're worried about it, uh, and you're not quite sure what to do, um, contact Seniors Rights Victoria Seniors through rights. that website, for sure. Good on you, Alex Judicata. Great to have you back on Two Legs. Coming up, uh, we'll be speaking with Dr Nick Carr about meat. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Nick, meat. Mal. 
Tell me about Mitt. Yum. Yum. Oh, this is, this is all very topical, of course, because of the WHO report that was released, which scared the pants off everyone, saying if you eat lots of processed meat and um, uh, hams and bacon and that sort of thing, your risk of cancer will increase 18%. 18? That's what they said. That's a pretty precise number. Well, and it's... Uh, and these are, you know, these are very, very smart people. They, yeah, yeah, they sure. reviewed 800 papers. This was the, um, the International Agency for research on cancer. There's not a couple of people in the back room just mucking around with the computer. They know what they're doing with research. But I'm going to get all statistical with you here. Lucky EpiPen is by your son. So if you'll bear with me just for a moment, because one of the problems that comes out of this is they use the scary figure because they're using what we call relative risk rather than what they we feel we sh- they should be using, which is what's called absolute risk. Now, before everybody well, switches off and goes to sleep, just to give you a quick example, yes. you may remember around about 2000, the Women's Health Initiative study came out saying that hormone replacement therapy for women, which we previously were saying was wonderful and marvellous, uh, wasn't so wonderful and marvellous because women had a 20% increased risk of heart disease if they took HRT. Uh, and it really sank HRT yeah, almost yeah, overnight yeah, because yeah. this was suddenly scary, awful-sounding yeah. figures. Yep. This was, again, a relative risk increase. Actually, the increased risk of heart disease in women who took HRT went from 1.32% to 1.57%. Mm. Now, uh, if, if you do... It's mathematics. The mathematics of that, that is actually a 20% rise, but it's actually only a one-quarter of 1% rise in absolute risk. Ah. And this is why this is so important. Because when you say to someone 20% increased risk, you think, terrifying, I won't go anywhere near it. If you say quarter of 1% risk, you think, well, that probably doesn't matter too much. Now, that's really really important because I was... Well, not that I'm a genius, but I was fooled by that. Because, you know, when you say 20% risk, it freaks me out. But if it's a tiny, 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 tiny risk that increases 20%, then it's not that much. So if we look at this 18% risk, and to be clear about what they're talking about, they were talking about an average consumption of 50 grams or more per day, every day of, of, processed, of meat. processed meat, which mm. means the sort of cured meats, ham, salami, sausage, that sort of thing. Grams. So and 50 grams not very much. It's 50 grams is not very much. Not even generously. Yeah, it, it, it's equivalent to about four rashes of bacon. Um, but the, the important point about this is that they were talking about that every single day, causing an 18% risk. Now, if you, if you crunch the numbers on this, um, in Australia, if you reach the age of 65, most the average risk of bowel cancer is just under 3%, 2.9%. Right. If you add an 18% risk to that, it goes up to 3.4%. Ah. So by the age of 65, if you've been eating cured meats every day at this moderate dose, you've increased your risk of bowel cancer by approximately 0.5 of 1%, which is a little less scary than 18%. Can I just ask, with these studies... I mean, were they longitudinal studies? Like, did they follow people or did they go back and say, well, if you've had bowel cancer, let's have a look at what you've eaten? The uh, group studied 800 different publications, some some of which are longitudinal and some of which are retrospective. Okay, so they did their work is what you're telling me. Oh, they did their work properly. Why don't they they, uh, announce... It correctly, then why don't they talk about relative? Well, increase? they probably did. It was probably was the journalists who've fallen down here and not picked this up. Um, 
I fear the reality is that um, putting out a position paper saying you get a half percent increased risk doesn't get any publicity yeah. at all. Uh, and so everybody wants their little piece of work to be out there and 18% gets headlines. Is it an anti-meat lobby behind this as well do you think is there a view um, you know it's become a political issue eating meat fortunately my expertise is in health rather than politics and i'll but sit on the fence and say I, I i have i have neither but the, but to be fair to the people who are publishing this they are epidemiologists like EpiPen on my left here and so they are interested while the individual risk increase might be small when you translate that across large populations it does make a difference so we think that even that 0.5 percent risk increase i'm talking about contributes to an extra two and a half thousand episodes of bowel cancer in australia well, that's a lot. every year that's a lot so while yeah. the risk to an individual may not be high at a population level it is important have they isolated the chemical in the processed meats that make that is bad no we don't know exactly which it is because there are numbers of different processes we think some of this applies to red meat generally even if it hasn't been processed so the evidence around non-processed red meat isn't as strong but there is still epidemiological evidence to suggest red meat in every form has some risk attached to it it's just stronger if it's processed through curing salting and that sort of uh, sausage making. So it was red meat. So I mm. gather chicken, do we know, was that part of the whole? Uh, chicken, they have found, uh, doesn't have any proven association with bowel cancer. Fish, probably, if anything, maybe a small negative association, possibly even protective. Really? Is that cured fish or just fish in general? I don't think we've got enough data on cured fish in this. Go to Scandinavia. You have cured fish, do you, most nights? How often do you eat cured fish? Your house. Why are you talking about cured? I was just thinking. Um, So, yeah. What is the most cured fish anyway? Smoked salmon. Smoked salmon? Oh, yeah. Anchovy? Anchovy? Kipper. Is there gravity to Gravelax? Who knows? Gravelax. Mm. Um, fascinating. Now, now mm. tell, this, this opens up a broader topic of meat. You must see a large number of people, particularly in the area that you work, the geographical area, because um, it's hip and trendy and groovy, because I live there. Um, <laughs> a lot of vegetarians, no? Yes, I, I think vegetarianism has become increasingly popular. My uh, now today 19-year-old daughter, happy birthday, Olivia, um, I decided to give up red meat about three and a half years ago and this year has gone fully vegetarian. Her original reason was um, environmental um, because of the environmental catastrophe caused by cows and sheep mm. um, chewing on the grass and, and destroying farting. pastures and farting a lot. Mm. Um, and sadly, I read this week that kangaroos are just as bad. We used to think kangaroo was an environmentally sound meat, but apparently they produce methane and carbon dioxide at the same rate as the ruminants. Uh, I tell my kids everybody farts, kangaroos included. Yes. So, what's the... So, I mean, I'd always thought that, that you know, during adolescence, especially for a, a, a girl, um, iron deficiency was a big problem, and being vegetarian would, you know, add to that. So, did that not happen... With your daughter, can I ask that on the show? <laughs> no, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right that uh, iron deficiency is a, a common problem, much more common for women because they lose iron through mm. menstruation and blood loss. Uh, and there are a lot of adolescents and adult women who struggle to keep their iron levels up. 
but it's not incompatible with vegetarianism. There's plenty of iron available in a vegetarian diet. My only advice would be, particularly if you had um, a person with heavier periods, losing a lot yeah. of iron in blood, uh, to get a test done if you're vegetarian and just make sure that your iron store's okay because they can drop quite low yeah. before you know. But it's not that simple going vegetarian, especially for an adolescent girl. I mean, you, you, you can't just say, I'm, I'm, I'm missing out. You have to sort of pick and choose what you're going to eat. No, you can't just say, no, I'm not eating meat. How do you mean? Well, so? you're going to say, well, I've got to replace the iron that I'm not getting. Uh, but a, a, a varied vegetarian diet will give you all the nutrients you need. There's, a, no, there's no problem with that. Or you could take iron tablets, I guess. Yeah, well. I, I wouldn't. Be, it's not necessary for someone on a vegetarian diet to take iron tablets. But as I say, if someone's at higher risk um, because they know they have heavy periods or they've got a previous history of borderline iron levels, mm. I'd want to make sure they were tested just to make mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't just whack them on iron tablets. Mm -hmm. And what about veganism, which is one step further down that track um do you iron is a, is a problem with no the, it, it, there's plenty of uh, iron in all the leafy green vegetables it's not mm -hmm. as bioavailable as the iron in red meat mm -hmm. but it's still well absorbed enough that iron isn't a problem for vegans now curiously the because vegans avoid any animal product, mm. so there's no milk or cheese or eggs, or eggs yeah. so it's not just no meat but no animal product. The difficulty for some vegans is vitamin B12, which is only found in animal product. Oh. So vegans struggle a bit to get vitamin B12, um, and one of the sources of vitamin B12, and, and put your hands over your small children's ears, uh, is the shit on the mushrooms. So if you want to keep your B12 level up as a vegan, don't wash your mushrooms because the dirt on the outside contains bacteria and the bacteria are stuffed full of B12, which is bioavailable. Mm. Yes. What does the lack of B12 cause? What are the, what's the effect we, of it? We store B12 in the liver and we usually store around about two years' supply. So you can go without B12 in your diet for some time. But if you're vegan over a long period of time, uh, your B12 levels can drop. Now, when that happens, it's subtle, it's slow, uh, it affects all aspects of growth and development and um, things like blood cell formation is affected and it can affect nerve functioning as well so that you can end up getting tingly or even numb feet and hands, that sort of thing. But that's rare in modern society. We always look for it. <laughs> we never find it. Subacute combined generation of the quad. It's one of the few things I remember from my... And absolutely beautiful, but uh, it's one of those textbook things which every medical student knows could happen, but in real life, it almost never does. Hey, Nick, um, you must get lots of reasons as to why people become vegetarian. I'll give you... I'll, I'll tell you why I stopped becoming vegetarian. No, 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 no I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Well, we need to explain your utilitarianism. Might, yeah, so I... I love the, look, gee, you'd be frightening in a courtroom, Lex. I just get scared looking at you. Um, I, uh, no, so I was vegetarian, but uh, my, my philosophy was I would eat anything that I would kill because I figure if, I'm not going to kill a cow because, you know, they're nice and they look, you know, cute. I'm not going to go kill a cow, so therefore I'm not going to eat, eat a cow. Same thing with a sheep, blah, 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 blah. But fish, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, I went fishing, I ate, I caught fish. I, you know. Have you so, seen a fish called Wanda? I mean, how could I, you possibly... I, could, I didn't have chips stuffed up my nose, though. So <laughs> I was a utilitarian. I would eat anything that I would kill or that you would kill. Mm. Um, and I thought that was my way of, uh, my philosophy of being in the world. So I'm wondering what people nowadays say when they say I'm a vegetarian. Is it, I mean, you just said your daughter was environmental. That's a, I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah. Uh, and we have a lot of people who call themselves polo pescatarians, um, because that? they will eat chicken and fish. 
um, <laughs> so Polo Pescatarian is someone who's uh, not eating the meats that are more environmentally destructive. Um, oh, like I, a green vegetarian. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, so I think there's a whole range of reasons why people choose this form of lifestyle and eating. And I suspect they get a bit tired of being asked, oh, why don't you eat meat and do you wear shoes with leather and this sort yeah, of thing? To me, these are choices that people are quite entitled to make and they're very good reasons for doing it. And as someone who's an absolute meat lover, mm. I have to say my daughter's um, influence means that I now cook a lot more vegetarian food. So that's good for you. It's good you, for should, you should have had the quinoa and chard salad I made last night. I, sh I should have. It was a sensation. Well, I had a good meal last night, too. Oh, what an eclectic show we've had this morning. Thank you so much, Nick. Um, it's amazing. We fired questions at you, and you knew the answers. I'm like, good at making stuff up. No, 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 no. <laughs> they, they sound legit, too. Um, thank you so much, Alexa Judicata, for waltzing in It's a this pleasure, morning. Mal. Uh, always good to have you. Thank you, too, to Dr. Carolyn Arnold, Head of the Pain Service at uh, Alfred Health. EpiPen, always good to have you there. We need to get a special microphone just for you because you keep having to crane your neck. And thank you to Dr. Nick Carr, GP extraordinaire. This is Dr. Mal Practice. We're going to leave you with the scientists from Einstein and GoGo. Look at them. They, they're just amazing, those guys over there in that studio. They are champing at the bit. We'll catch up with you 10 o'clock next Sunday morning. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7 This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne Truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au